0: Welcome to What The Mel. What The Mel is powered by Proximity International and is a space for in-depth, honest discussions on all things research, monitoring, evaluation, and learning for humanitarian aid and development. My name is Ezra Carmel, and I'm joined, as usual, by Richard Harrison. And today, we're both lucky to also be joined by Andre Kalmayer, uh, who is the founder of CMC, Conflict Management Consulting, and also works as a consultant himself, specializing in the design, monitoring, and evaluation of development, humanitarian, and stabilization interventions in fragile conflict and post-conflict environments. André, it's, it's really great to have you with us today.
1: Yeah, well, I'm excited. Thank you for having me.
0: No, I mean, we're really excited to have you on, and also for today's discussion topic, which is, which is pretty juicy, or at least as juicy as m topics maybe can be. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're talking about the extent to which project level evaluations actually add up to a national evaluative picture of change. And we'd all sort of spoken about this, you know, before the podcast, and and you'd both highlighted this sort of gap between the micro and the macro um, in terms of both aid projects generally, but specifically within the M&E for them. So I was wondering if you could, you know, maybe we could start by but you're telling me a little bit about the problem that you see and and maybe some context in which you've seen this problem actually playing out.
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Ezra. If I may uh, just chip in and I'm over the moon to have Andre on the show with us today, uh, someone I've known for a number of years and is a genius in this field. Uh, I mean, we touched on this uh, some time ago and, uh, you know, we both work, we all work in this field of mail and working mainly often at the project level with ngos or donors and i think where this starts from is that we see on the one hand a huge amount of planning from the donor side from you know finances that that come from home countries that needs to be well spent in different countries around the world and there's a huge amount of effort that goes into thinking about where that money should go. On the other hand, there's a huge amount of effort that comes from the organizations that are asked to spend it, right? And they are, their concern is what they should be doing and how they should be spending on a daily basis and reporting on the success of those projects and programs. But I think what we see, or what at least my feeling is that what you see is there's there's a disconnect in effect in that when the reporting is finalized and the dust settles on all that ground level work, we as a sort of community as a, as a development community, maybe haven't found the right combination yet to profit from all that ground level work and build it into a national or regional picture. And now, if this is true, this is not going to happen overnight, that's for sure. Yeah, But yeah. hopefully Conversations like this could at least illuminate uh, whether this is a real problem that can be resolved. And uh, yeah, looking forward to getting into this uh, today.
1: Um, Yeah, well, thanks, Richard. And um, thanks to both of you. Um, I really like this format. And when you asked me if I could join, I I immediately said yes, because I think we need this kind of discussion between people working in that field. And so, yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Now, about this topic, yeah, it's not not an easy one. I think monitoring, evaluation, learning kind of follows the engagement of donors in different countries. And and there's different attention to different conflicts on this planet. There's different peace-building contexts and some some conflicts get get a lot of attention get a lot of funding others get get less attention it's kind of a a separate question i always have but i'm i'm from a monitoring evaluation learning perspective i'm not exactly sure what is the the easier context working in a country that gets a lot of attention a lot of funding or one that is a bit of a neglected or, or frozen conflict but when we had a discussion before our call today one example we discussed is, is Afghanistan because it's a country we, we all have worked in and we've seen different developments and projects and donors and governments engaging in Afghanistan. And um, I've been myself a number of times looking at different types of projects of different donors in the field of promoting good governance, promoting um, stabilization, um, winning hearts and minds and, and all the um, the different types of right. um, Peacebuilding and stabilization approaches that many Western governments and and the UN were funding in the past. Now Afghanistan is a difficult case because the current quite dramatic political changes throw a lot of the the engagement in, into question, and it's very easy for people to say, well, the final outcome is is what we're seeing now, takeover of of a Taliban government, and then it was all a failure. But I guess it's it's a bit more complicated in um, in your, in reality, and when you when you zoom in, but one thing I often noticed when I worked in Afghanistan, so I evaluated projects funded by. European Union, by the German government, by the UN, and sort of was kind of around 2010, 2011, 12 was really the point in time when a lot of money was invested in trying to stabilize the country. There were different objectives and national action plans and national strategies. But there was a time when there were a lot of individual projects by a lot of organizations, so bilateral donors, uh, UN agencies, regional organizations all the donors you, you you can find in the field of peace building and um, I, I've seen some of the projects they they all had good intentions and they wanted to address specific issues that had, uh, had been identified that uh, were relevant for peace building and I've looked at other evaluation reports and the overall picture was was quite a positive one so you could see a lot of evaluation reports saying well you know there are some things you could improve but overall the project was quite successful successful and reached, uh, it had an impact and reached the objectives. And uh, at the same time, the, it felt like there was um, a bit of a disconnect to the overall situation in the country. So, a lot of people working in, in, in Afghanistan, uh, many people became quite, quite cynical because there right. was this feeling of we're not making progress, we're not really achieving what we said, like on the highest level we want to achieve for that country. And, and I always felt there was a, yeah, a certain disconnect between um, the project level evaluations and the overall. Situation in in that country, and I felt like I, I was not the only one yeah. who felt like that.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting, Andre. And I, I mean, I would love to hear about other experiences you've had with this dynamic. And you know, maybe you could even speak to the first time that you you saw this sort of disconnect playing out in a project you were involved with.
1: So the first time I I saw that th- this problem that uh, local level individual projects don't add up to overall peace and and development in the country the first time i saw that um, in my work life was in around november 2012 in south sudan i was in in summer 2012 i was doing an evaluation in South Sudan for a UN agency that had been funding peace building all over the country, right. and uh, we actually had a very, very positive impression during the evaluation. We we got a lot of evidence that um, you know everything this project set out to do, both on the, the national level in in um, in Juba and also on a, on a decentralized level. Uh, everything this project tried to address and achieve and the conflict analysis it was based on and how relevant the project was and how much it was targeting the relevant conflict drivers that were identified in an initial uh, baseline analysis so um, all of this was working very well and we had a very good impression we we wrote um, probably one of the most positive evaluation reports I've ever produced because there was a lot of evidence that everything the UN had done worked quite well and we submitted this report around and, um, October 2012 and end of November December 2012 the um, the big conflict broke out again um, mainly on Kind of on the highest level of, of South Sudanese politics. Um, the whole country was thrown back into um, you know, a conflict and, and crisis situation mm-hmm. and uh, one that experienced a lot of violence. And we had submitted our report saying the peace building project of the UN had been largely successful. Right, and and that was that was a moment when I realized there is this is disconnect. Right, so yeah. you look you yeah. look at a project, you evaluate a project uh, against its logical framework and, and against its planned impact and outcomes and and outputs, and then you see a project that actually achieves everything that. It planned to achieve, and and you give a positive evaluation, and then in the process of while you're waiting for your feedback to to the evaluation, you have you have a political crisis on the highest level that uh, to a large degree destroys all the achievements that um, a UN uh, led peacebuilding project had achieved. So I think this is the first time that I became, uh, like, aware of that, of that issue. And I I don't have an easy solution. But it's first time I I witness it firsthand. Uh, There can be this disconnect between project level and the overall situation in the country.
2: Yeah, I I keep having this image in my mind. And it's (laughs) an old black and white films. I don't know if you can picture it. But like, you had these rooms in London, or Whatever capital it was, but you had generals right. standing around a table with sticks moving around troops or arms uh or equipment, and there we saw a depiction of humans coming together to organize a crisis immediately, directly, coherently, and you know, I think that for me, the macro side of things not yet really tried how, how i would expect it to be may look like some form of tangible concrete higher level of direct coordination yeah. on, on an yeah. ongoing dynamic basis
1: yeah i think i can i can imagine that situation rich um there's really two uh, two problems uh, in reality with that picture the the first one is donor coordination so this idea is that um that a number of decision makers with with funding and ideally good intentions are looking jointly at a map and discussing what should we do here jointly so really a a joint planning process in my in my experience, in reality, that's, that's very difficult to organize. So donor coordination in in most evaluations I've ever done, and and most other evaluation reports I've read, donor coordination is, is a weaker point. And that has to do with different planning processes. So every, uh, every donor, every UN agency, they have mainly like headquarter based processes to how they generate projects, how they monitor projects, how they evaluate projects, right. And these headquarters are in New York and in London and in Berlin and in Brussels. And so there there is a um, the idea that actually we we have a joint planning process for what different donors do in a in a country and fund in a country, I think in my in my experience is not in reality not really working because right. um, every organization, you know, every embassy in, is kind of responding to headquarters, and headquarter has has different um, uh, different types of of planning cycles. And and I think there's there's also something else that often in in at least some countries leads to a, a real problem of um, of acceptance of aid. So it's this whole idea of you know, people standing around uh, a table and um, and planning what's what's good for a country and that. Uh, the the question I think for successful aid projects and approaches is really how much local ownership is there, um, right? What are the ambitions of a project, and and how can really like local needs and local inputs be, be included in a project to make it acceptable and and then ultimately successful?
0: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And Rich, I really like your your war room analogy. And I wonder, I mean. You know, if we haven't seen this kind of this kind of coordination, I mean, what have we seen on the ground? I mean, there's a lot of efforts to move evaluation to the national level, you know, especially linking this to country-led evaluations. In in the Paris Declaration, the follow-up and the Accra Agenda for Action, you know, they both stress the importance of developing and working through country systems and explicitly refer to national monitoring systems and country-led evaluations. And of course, that means that partner countries should should own and lead their own country-led national monitoring and evaluation systems, while donors and international organizations, you know, should should support sustainable national monitoring and and evaluation, you know, capacity development. I mean, do we s- have you, have you seen this playing out on the ground in terms of donors or you know on that host country side? Well,
2: I mean, I, I've never seen it. I mean, I don't know if it's because I'm too oriented to to certain geographies or too much on the conflict side, I I could imagine it would be more likely to be happening on the the pure development side. But for me, never, Uh, Andre?
1: Um I I have the same experience. I think the, the the type of projects that I'm looking at, there's always this question first, is this is this funding spent according to OSC criteria? And um I think in this field of stabilization I, I think most governments um have you know they try to spend aid money according to DAC criteria, but there's there's a certain proportion that's not spent according to DAC criteria and that's Especially relevant in, in fragile uh, states and, and conflict contexts, and then, and then uh, even this idea that you know, the way that money is st- spent should be aligned to um, OECD principles just just doesn't apply. And and in reality, I haven't um, yeah I, I haven't seen this either.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and going back to you know what I was mentioning about country led evaluations and that sort of country ownership have you have you ever seen a situation where a host government is is playing a key role in actively coordinating donor agendas and and you know monitoring and evaluation activities
1: <laughs> no <laughs> no <laughs> i mean i um there are some governments um that issue national development strategies and right. and those strategies are really like uh, nationally driven right so there are situations where even a national development strategy seems to be almost like imposed on a country because it's needed so the the you know the, the multilateral institutions and bilateral donors can spend their money uh, so they need to make an alignment to a national development strategy and be able to quote like Okay, article 2 says education and and then they also fund the the writing of the national development strategies but i've seen i've seen some genuine examples where where governments um really were in charge of developing national development strategies and and then they asked for the monitoring mechanisms yeah. we've yeah. worked in a project uh, developing indicators for the National Development uh, Strategy of the Kurdish region in Iraq, for example, and that was a process very much driven by by the local government and it felt like something that was genuine and something they really wanted, and they also want to make progress and they also want to show the progress to donors yeah so that that's the example it was was very powerful for me. There are situations when governments come together, populations come together. And, and they really want to develop their their country and they also want international support and they want to be like serious about this topic of monitoring and evaluation. So I've I've seen a few examples um where Um, governments wanted to uh, really be accountable so they they put forward an idea of how we want to develop and then they left it to to externals um, and consultants like us to really monitor the progress against the national development plan and i've seen that in in a number of countries and contexts but it's a kind of minority of the projects i i have worked on but I think there's there's potential that in in some situations people genuinely want this progress and want like external um, monitoring evaluation learning support from from donors.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and maybe turning towards solutions a little. I I wonder if there's anything specifically on on the MEL side that can be done. You know, maybe tools or methods to ensure better data or better coordination or, you know, better contextual understanding. You know, what can what can e practitioners do?
2: Well, for, for, for me, it's not difficult to imagine ways to cohere. As ever, probably it comes down to money. I mean, right. the, the point that amuses me the most is questionnaires, <laughs> scales, and the ability to merge data. So every time an, an M&E officer sits down an INGO to go ahead and, and survey some hundreds of people in this village or that community or this region, they understandably open up their laptop and start typing, you know, what they feel is a good survey. And yeah. They'll use different question structures. They'll use um, you know, different numbers of codes on a, on a, on a, on a Likert scale or whatever if we had a situation where when that person or any of us sits down to write a survey tool, if we had this idea, this spark in our minds, which was, oh yes, let me try and use five or 10, you know, standardized questions. Right. Or at least the scale, then you can begin to imagine a world in which that data could then be shared or certain data, could be shared i'm not talking about everyone using the same questionnaires that would be ridiculous and would never work but it feels maybe not sustainable it feels to me like there's an area worth exploring for me to start improving a system you need to look at the the grassroots the the basic um working level and for me yeah i i think one opportunity is to is is to consider whether we as a sort of ingo community can liaise at that level, I, it, it reminds me of other systems that function well and provide insights. Look at Amazon ratings. Look at TripAdvisor ratings. You know um, that only works because everyone has been drawn towards scoring stuff on a similar basis. Right. I mean, it's super simplified, right? But if <laughs> if Amazon didn't have uh, a five point scale. That was super consistent. You wouldn't have this new paradigm of of trusting what to buy or where to go on holiday with TripAdvisor. So that's one option, but there are many.
1: Yeah, I, I very much agree with Rich. I I think everything we do should be based on on evidence, should be based on data, should be based on surveys. I'm a big fan of surveys. A nationwide perception surveys is a very powerful tool to design any project. Um, problem in reality is sometimes um, what if you are just not allowed to do that, right? If, what if you need government permissions and you won't get those permissions to do a nationwide perception survey? Another um, question is the, the security situation in a, in a country um and we have a in in monitoring evaluation learning we have a big responsibility for the um, the people we work with and if someone is collecting data for us in a difficult context there are a lot of ethical considerations for uh, sending someone to conduct interviews and what we can ask from uh, from our staff and yeah. um, so that that's that's one point um i i mean i do agree that that surveys are a very powerful tool um, to understand what we should be doing. I, I have this feeling that um, someone that has an M MEL mindset, glasses of looking at the world of, of aid projects and stabilization projects, in terms of. Um, um, how they are phrased and what's the kind of the theory of change behind it and is it like is it logic um, are we really doing what we should be doing in order to achieve what we want to achieve and I, fe- I feel like people who work in the field of monitoring evaluation learning they also have a natural role to play in, in design of projects often we as, um, as evaluators or as M&E experts um, in in the the best case, we are um, hired right from the beginning, so long even before yeah. the, the project uh, sets foot on the ground, and so that's the ideal case. Um, then uh, regularly we are kind of asked to uh, add an M and E system once the uh, the project has been framed, designed, and commissioned by the donor, and that's that's still a good moment to to support. So you can still you know what whatever the the project had in mind they want to achieve, um, you can still add a meaningful MAD system. And then kind of the worst case is that we are hired uh, two years after a contract started and um, everyone was busy with a project and implementation and the the whole idea about M and E was was forgotten or not considered as a priority. So we hired two years down the line and and asked to um, come up with an M and E system and data collection and uh, helping a project to show its outcome and impact um, retroactively. So that's kind of the from an M and E perspective um, the worst case. And I, I've seen right. all of these three. Um, I, I like to think of people working on on MEL as kind of you know anthropologists who are trying to to understand the uh, situation from from a very very local perspective and i think uh, the work we try to do is very much how to um trying to understand how how people look at the world and how to translate this actually into into mel tools which need to respond to uh, quality criteria of of headquarters and i've experienced situations where this went very well and i 've experienced situations when this became a, a very theoretical academic exercise i mean one we we talked about afghanistan earlier i've i've been involved in projects that had um, uh, as an explicit aim to win hearts and minds of Afghan, which was one of those. <laughs> catchwords of what we want to achieve in Afghanistan. And then I, I remember once I had a, a, like a final discussion on a report where an, an M&E expert of a donor told me, well, so we, you know, we know the, the number of people living in this area, in the, in the target area. And we, we know the, the money invested in the project. So, if we divide the total amount of money spent into the total amount of beneficiaries achieved, we can calculate exactly how much it costs to win one heart and mind. (laughs) And that, for me, was you know that's the um, yeah it was was not the best example for um, for for how to do it. But so I'd I'd like to think of evaluators as. uh, as kind of anthropologists who would try to put on a, a local head a local a local perspective, but then I know like that we are all all facing institutional constraints most of the time we especially in fragile contexts, we cannot travel to all the places we'd like to travel to, a lot of evaluations I've done myself, you end up just in a in the the four star hotel in the capital, and you don't really get out um, to the people you would love to talk to because of security constraints. So, um, so I think what I'm you know what I'm trying to say is I think a lot could be done, but there are also a lot of constraints. Why, why we can't do all the things that kind of theoretically could be done in order to really understand the context and understand how a project should be um, framed and monitored and evaluated to really tell us about the impact.
2: Hey, yeah, I wonder if I may just chip in there. I I really like that idea of male people as designers and uh, uh I've really been lucky in the last few years to start getting involved in program design and and it's become blindingly obvious to me just how vital that, that loop is that, that mail has to connect itself with design. And actually, I don't know if you're aware, but there's a excellent uh, website called DME for Peace, which, which really is a big proponent of, of that and has a whole community. Also, uh, yeah. <laughs> really appreciate and agree with your point around you know the the numerous constraints you know one of the constraints we have to be mindful of here when we talk about coordination whether it's micro or macro and you mentioned this really Andre is is that we are talking about donors who are still responsible for carrying out the wishes of their voters back home and they want to retain control of of their um, policies and actions. You know, it, it reminds me of Brexit and you know the British population's decision to eventually leave Europe. You know, it was a question of populations wanting to take back agency, and, and, and that right. agency is alive and kicking in every embassy in every country. And so we have to remember, you know, in this conversation, you know, to be realistic, these donors have the right to carry out development and humanitarian work as they as they see fit or they think their populations and voters back home see fit
0: yeah no that makes sense rich i i wonder though i mean beyond the sort of mel level solutions then you know what are the sort of broader changes that need to take place you know what are the issues that really need to be tackled is this primarily a question of of the sum of the micro not adding up to the macro or that um problems with the results chains from the micro or assumptions that don't hold true or is it just a question of better coordination
2: yeah 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 i mean for me for me it's i feel quite strongly against the idea of all the micros being encouraged to create the macro i think we've i think that's what we've been trying and i i think that (laughs) the older i get the more i the more i believe that i try and believe that people are good people (laughs) And I also believe that people are selfish people, like we're all going to be selfish. And I feel like, I mean, I'm being a bit playful there. But what I mean is, at the project level, at the ground level, why would an underfunded NGO or INGO, how could it possibly afford to contribute upwards towards a bigger picture? You know, recently, I was in West Africa, thinking with a donor about whether we could invest funds in, in having a team visit ingo's to to physically collect their data to share it with others in 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 a shared system you know i think it's unrealistic for me to believe that these the implementers are going to have the resource to build a bigger picture i hope and believe that, that that there will be more movement on the the macro side i think it's worth remembering you know i think if the un if a un person were here or an INGO country director were here, they they would remind us that there is a lot going on. We haven't touched on it too much today. But like, OCHA has a role in emergency humanitarian coordination, you know, could that be extended, you know, that there's a model there, right, the INGO cluster system, the IASC system functions with and, and well, in some cases, you know, with with UN involvement. So for me, there's, there's already functioning systems that could be elaborated. Part of the issue here is that at the moment funding for MEL only really covers the period of implementation. Once the implementation is finished, there's there's no real money to watch and observe what is probably happening, the outcomes and impact that is growing in the years after the implementation uh, has finished. So, you know, for me there's a need if, I would love to see somebody pilot this, but if we could put some money in a bank account or a UN structure that would allow us to have sight of the effect of the work years after it had finished, that would be very interesting. Right. I think it's time to try something new beyond the individual uh, components. I uh, I had some years in the private sector, uh, maybe a decade. And, and sometimes I, when I'm thinking about this subject, my, my brain starts wondering about how the private sector, just as an example of a different animal, right, would, would approach this. And the conclusion of that thought is about specialization. So you think about a factory and how maybe a car moves down the factory line. Everyone on that line has a specific role, and, and you know, and the and the story of the refinement of manufacturing and production is is one of specialization. Maybe this is a, a a ridiculous metaphor, but I think if the private sector was asked to redesign aid, I would not be astonished if they focused on specialization. And if you bring that idea to uh, to sort of tangible fruition, I think you would then see donors work differently with a with a reasonable balance maybe of control and alignment which would look like agreements to take on certain chunks of the development and humanitarian spectrum of problems in in a given region so ask yourself what needs to happen in any country or region you have a you know, a bewildering range of choices from education, you know, WASH, security, justice, you know, it's, it's a ridiculously large set of problems. But why do we not quite have any kind of agreement in place to, to specialize? I can think of certain donors that are very good at security training. I can think of certain donors that are very experienced in in WASH. Right. Yes, of course, there's an argument that every donor has the right to remain completely in control of what they're funding. But I think that if we dared to look like, if we want to be a really coherent team, do we need to divide up things a little bit? You know, I just wonder if we start to divide up responsibility for for outputs, let's say, with countries or donors leading certain outputs in the collaborative nation or regional theory of change, so that each donor can be held to account for and take pride in success if they get there. I tell you what, if I was a Daily Mail reader in the UK, you know, sceptical about aid, (laughs) and you told me that that didn't exist, I would be annoyed. You know, I, I feel like as a taxpayer, you know, you have no idea what's going on in the aid world, but I, I suspect that most taxpayers would think it was normal that countries divide up such a huge challenge in mm. that kind of way.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think if development aid is something that needs to be sold to the domestic audience that's paying for it, I think it's, it's very difficult um, to explain how spending money in um, in developing contexts, uh, is more successful than spending it domestically, and I think in, um, in, in a number of countries there's a very similar uh, discussion going on, and it's difficult to justify. And there is something that, from an ME perspective, doesn't match up. It's this idea of um, the idea that if we just allocate a certain amount of money to a developing problem. Um, will fix the problem. That's that's just not the case. You know, it it might be the case if the project understood the local context. If it's based on a serious baseline study. If it's based on a, a serious conflict analysis. If it's based on local needs and and a survey of what people tell you. Uh, you should focus on. There. There is a chance that a project will really address those problems. But uh, in reality, there's many, many constraints to that. And that's where like the political idea of allocating money to a problem and and solving that problem just just don't match. And, uh, and I think that's something very difficult if you are a politician to explain to the public, right. I think a lot of uh, countries were now engaged in kind of soul searching exercise about Afghanistan and what happened and what did we achieve and we achieve anything and how much money do we spend. I think it's a a good example of what aid can achieve and what aid cannot achieve. And ultimately at least um, when you look at governments and bilateral aid, uh, aid is a foreign policy tool. I mean, there's a lot of Discussions before elections in democratic countries, whether aid and, and foreign policy should be merged. Uh, the UK has taken this decision, but this in every every other European country, there there are debates about this. And and some people say aid should just be about helping people, and and foreign policy is is pursuing your national interests. Um, and and then there's people who say, well, it's more or less the same. And I'm I'm not sure, but uh, monitoring evaluation has to measure projects against what they were like set out to to achieve. And and I think that's kind of the the operational level we're looking at. And uh, it's it's difficult to. To do it and it's also difficult to acknowledge the political context that projects are implemented in, at the same time measuring projects against what they set out to do in a logical framework, results framework, business case. Yeah.
0: Well that's probably a slightly depressing note to leave things on, but Mm -hmm. I think probably also, you know, a good place for us to leave Mm -hmm. our discussion today. So so andre thank you so much for joining us it's it's really been great to talk to you you know super interesting conversation
2: yeah i want to thank andre as well it's been super interesting super useful to to discuss this i you know i think it was inevitable that we were not gonna feel that we could crack the code of having any sort of major solution i think we've touched on a, a a number of really interesting possible solutions and uh yeah, I, I hope we can get there. You know, I I, I think something will happen uh, in in the future. I think there's, um, yeah, I'm just uh, and I'm hopeful that this conversation just becomes one of of many that will, um, you know, help nudge the development humanitarian community t- towards a, a slightly more coherent uh, future.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much um, for, for this opportunity. I enjoyed talking to you and uh, I look forward to um, the, the, the future discussions you're going to organize and, and listening to them.
0: Yeah. No, thanks again. And, and, and thank you also to everyone that listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of What The Mel.